0: Hey everyone, I'm Michael Whistler, and I sincerely believe that science fiction can help us save the world. Well, today, we're going to have a conversation with Terry Favreau, author of a book called Generation Robot, and she's going to tell us why we need not fear the robot apocalypse. Or maybe she just is in cahoots with the robots, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. (laughs) This is Exploring Tomorrow. Terry, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for your book. I found it really uh, quite a fascinating read, uh, and it, you interweave beautifully a very personal uh, side to uh, this whole idea of robots with your your dad's fascination with robots and growing up around that, and then tracing, uh, you know, the history of the last several decades of how. Uh robots have been part of pop culture, have been part of science fiction, and have been part of, of working culture. And as our world, our working lives have changed with automation, with AI, and now our just our daily lives are changing uh, dramatically thanks to AI and automation and all that. So your book covers quite a bit. And, uh, and so I, I'm just really curious about what was the, um, sort of the impetus to taking all of this, uh, and p- collecting it into this narrative, this book and in this fashion?
1: Oh, well, well, the impetus was definitely dad, um, you know, whenever I say that I grew up with a father who built robots in our backyard um, in our basement in the late sixties and early seventies, I always get this, what, um, but he did. Um, he was an electrician, um, had actually, um, he was an immigrant from Italy to, to Canada uh, in, the tw- in 1920 actually, same year Asimov was born just by complete coincidence. And uh, dad wasn't a highly educated man. and sort of grew up during the Depression um, in St. Catharines, which is near Niagara Falls. Uh, but he was very inventive. He, he was, had a very creative mind in that way that oftentimes engineers and scientists do. And so when the age of the industrial robot arrived, which was much earlier than many people know, which was in the 60s. Dad happened to be the guy. He was the go-to guy where he worked. They didn't know who to pick to be the technician for the robot. And they picked my dad. And my father developed a kind of a love affair <laughs> with this industrial robot and uh, and started bringing home um, pieces, like, you know, components that he was able to get by writing a few purchase orders that he shouldn't have been writing um, and building things in, you know, to help us kind of, you know, automate the house at a time when that was very much still in the realm of science fiction. So as an, you know, over the years, I sort of watched that <laughs> get out of control <laughs> at my parents' house, um, many visits from the telephone company, the electricity company, the fire department, As dad sort of, you know, sometimes things would go wrong. Um and so I knew there was a story there and I had been, you know, a writer for for a while and I'd written several books, all fiction and all science fiction or sort of fantasy type books. And I had, and I'd sort of wanted to write something about someone like my dad and call it the robot lover. And then um, realized that really the, the story was how did this man who, you know, sort of had this Met a robot at a time when most people were only reading robots on film sets. um be, first of all, become ins- like become inspired to actually build robot work, and they did work working robots around our house. And also, where did that robot come from? I mean, wh- what the heck was this robot doing in this this little industrial town near Niagara Falls in 1968? Like, where did that come from? So the impetus was really looking at my father and his kind of motivation for this, but also looking at the history of that first industrial robot. So, And that just took me uh, in a lot of directions and some of them were very unexpected. And one of the first things that was unexpected was that that first industrial robot was partly inspired by science fiction. So therefore it's a book about real robots and imaginary robots, and the two meet more often than you might think.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating because uh, I think that one of the things that that draws me to your book so much is that you begin with this very personal aspect of it, but then that uh, that really does open up this the whole realm of okay, so wh- yeah, like you said, where does where do these robots come from? And and I you know being a uh, lover of science fiction, creator of science fiction myself, um, and then interested too in you know how you bring in, you interweave that sort of cultural awareness of robots and how there's that interplay of science fiction and science reality uh, informing each other uh, in this. And I understand also you you do write science fiction as well. Yep.
1: Yeah.
0: So it continues to kind of feed each other here, which is great.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, we uh, we were a big sci fi house, which is interesting. You know, again, through my childhood, it was interesting because my dad didn't read fiction. He was like one of the I only read nonfiction. He was one of those guys, right? Yeah. And mostly, what he read were like you know, in uh, what what did they call them? Keith Kit instructions and. Popular science was a big one in our house, that kind of thing. We had a copy. I talk about the book Cybernetics, which was one of the earliest books on on AI. I remember that book in the house. But everyone else in the house, my I was the youngest of four, and everybody was a big reader. And it was all Asimov. Arthur C. Clarke was our god. We loved him. And a lot of fantasy, you know, the Narnia books and, and Tolkien and all that. So, and... Um, yeah, I think it was partly influenced by my father's real, you know, he was a, he was a tremendous lover of, uh, you know, uh, of scientists and a big admirer of Edison, you know, Edison and, and, and Einstein, you know, so it's, so I think they are intertwined. Um, it was always kind of a, a, we were always sort of fascinated by technology, by, you know, what was going on with moonshots at the time and space travel. Um so you know, are they I think everything fed into everything else in a way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um so in in terms of how science fiction shaped uh robotics and our understanding of robotics,
2: okay.
0: um what, what do you see, like, you know, what if, if you're, like, at a cocktail party, say, and people are like, <laughs> oh, so, yeah, so what is the deal with, uh, uh... with robots and science fiction? Ha- have Has science fiction done, you know, in some ways more harm than good in presenting the Terminator-type scenario mm-hmm. and, and the idea of the robot uprising or the Matrix-like mm-hmm. thing? Uh, or or has, has actually the net result from science fiction in your perspective been uh, for the better has actually helped robotics along. I'm kind of curious in your take there.
1: I I would say both things are true. Uh, Based on the research I did for the book and talking to roboticists who are doing, you know, in the field now, mostly in universities, um, I really believe we wouldn't have robots in AI to the point we have right now without science fiction, every single one of them to, and it was to a man and a woman, fortunately there were lots of women among the roboticists, which would please me, told me that they were initially inspired by something in sci-fi. And I found that a lot when I was just simply reading the history of AI and robotics, and and the history of computers for that matter. Um, Some really common touchstones, depending on the generation of the scientists or the roboticists, um, 2001, a space odyssey. Um. it was a huge influence on that field. So I'm trying to remember; 1968, I believe, was the release date, um, which is certainly not the beginning of the story of robotics. But it was a an absolutely pivotal year, and there were some people. It was particularly involved with the development of artificial intelligence, who were teenagers when, or young, you know, young adults when it, when 2001 came out. And they, their life's mission became after that movie to build a HAL. Now,
0: (laughs) (laughs) which is fascinating.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you you know, it's that idea of you know we take this for granted now in this in this age of Alexa and Siri, but the idea of an AI who you could communicate with, who could speak, who had a voice, Hmm. something that we just absolutely think of as normal now in 1968 was absolutely revolutionary, not to mention the idea of an AI who, you know, sort of could make decisions, you know, who who had kind of that power to kind of weigh things in the back, you know, very Asimovian actually, if you look right. at Asimov's work. Yep. Um, but I think that idea of making an artificial human brain or intellect or intelligence um, absolutely motivated a lot of, of the early not, I'm not even going to, I shouldn't even call them early because 60s wasn't early, but to us early, those those people who got into the field then. Another one that came up a lot was actually Star Wars. So the R2-D2s, the C-3POs, the idea of these, you know, these helper bots who were, were human-like and could communicate and had personalities and could move around and do things um, was very inspirational to people that I talk to, like, for example, at Carnegie Mellon, who who do, you know, mobile robots and a lot of ro- robotics that have really involved sort of day-to-day life. Um, and a lot of, of of robots, frankly, that help with people who have physical limitations, um, whether it's due you know, aging or because they're disabled persons. Um, so, you know, that cert- the, the world of science fiction, I absolutely believe we would not be seeing some AI when we saw it to, to the develop to the point that we that it has been, we would not be seeing the the massive push on in, in sort of more humanoid type robots or animal-like robots or even self-driving cars. But that's a whole other story right, right. <laughs> um, if it hadn't been for sci-fi. We wouldn't have mo- mobile phones. Um, we're highly inspired, but even by you know the communicator on Star Trek Right. Um, there, there's there are strong connections you know people don't always think of engineers and scientists um, as being you know creative types like artists right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the creative impulse I think in a lot of them is very similar to being you know what we would think of as an artist yeah. um, they, they, they are very driven and inspired by their imaginations uh, and other and other things another and which came up again in a lot of interviews but so sci-fi was critical, um, I think, to to many of them, um, including the guy <laughs> who actually developed Unimate, which was that industrial robot arm that my dad worked with, which basically was just a, a robot that picked up. Um, it could do many things, but that basically picked up a hot part out of a mold and dunked it into a coolant over and over again. Just did this. It was, it was this huge arm. That's, that's all it did, right? Um, that robot was inspired by Isaac Asimov. Fascinating. At a, cock- at a cocktail party, two guys getting drunk at a cocktail party. One, one, an inventor. The other an- was, was an entrepreneur talking to each other in 1956, and you know they get too many martinis. And one of them says to the other, "I got this idea. You know, I got this idea for this thing to use in factories." And the other guy, who was the Asimov fan, listened to him and said, "Well, that doesn't sound like a." And the guy had a very technical name for this device he was coming up. He said, that, that, that sounds like a robot. That sounds like something out of Isaac Asimov. And this was in New York. So Asimov was probably two blocks away writing, right? right. When <laughs> they had this conversation. And that led to the development of the first Unimate robot, which eventually found its way to this little car plant in St. Catharines, where my dad was, where my dad was like, whoa, that is something way cool. I got to get some of this. Home. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I've, I've given you this sort of, this is the, you know the sci-fi, you know, really encouraged and 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 nurtured the imaginations of scientists. But you're absolutely right. The Terminator has much to be <laughs> held responsible for, and I have had I have had roboticists say that to me. Mm-hmm. That you know, it's very, it's actually surprisingly difficult sometimes to get interviews mm-hmm. with people in that field because they are used to having people show up and think, okay, I'm going to find out like how they're, what, you know, kind of evil robot they're planning to use to destroy the world. So who's going to end up being, you know, like Skynet. So right. it, it, it cuts both, both ways, Mike. Um, it, it both inspires um, innovation, science fiction, but it also gives us a, I think science fiction, when you're not in the field in particular, gives us a kind of, uh, well, no, I'm not saying everything about robotics is good. There are many, there are many <laughs> issues, uh, and there are and there are things to be worried about. Absolutely, but I do think that we have a we we have an overblown fear about the wrong things. I guess I would say about robots and AI mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. from film. Um, although I think there's some that. Uh, are probably more accurate about what's coming than others, but that's a whole other topic. Um, it also it also um, creates false de- false expectations of what these machines autom- automation is like. Um, right. I could give you an example of that's right out of yeah. Asimov, which is probably one of the most enduring myths and is so it is so wrong. <laughs> which is that robots are, you know, that we want, or let's say large corporations and manufacturers and, you know, companies want to build robots to replace human workers um, because they are indestructible and they never break down. And they're sort of like these in eternal beings that, um, you know, uh, will outlive us and are bigger and stronger and, you know, et cetera. Right. Well, there's certainly there's no question that there the job loss through automation. There's you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: this is a problem, right?
2: Yeah.
1: However, <laughs> the idea that robots are eternal or that they're they're not vulnerable um, is is it's absolutely the opposite. If there's one problem that exists in the world of robots is that they are fragile. They are extremely apt to break down. They are expensive, and so the it's it's. Um, they have, there are some, there are obviously some advantages, but the, the idea that robots are these internal beings with a positronic brain, like Asimov said, um, is not true. They, they, their lifespan is, you know, industrial robot does not last as long as a human being. Obviously. Um, I had one roboticist to say, you know, think about how long you have a cell up a mobile phone or, or have a car. Right. That's about, you know, as we get into more and more sophisticated robots, obviously they're, they're all driven by AI. The way he put it to me was, you know, here, here's the phone, here's the robot's brain, right? Right. All we're Mm -hmm. trying to do is put arms and legs on it. Well, how (laughs) long do you you own this brain for Mike? I mean, I don't know. I've had this one maybe three years and I'm, and it's probably due for an upgrade, right? So, you know, the robot's brain wears out or has to be, upgraded or has to be replaced completely but the robot like humanoid robots like actual engineered moving around the environment robots robots that work in factories robots that work in kitchens or in farms are subject to heat light dust and oil and all sorts of other things that cause the components in their bodies to break down in a lot of ways they are more fragile and, and, and have shorter lifespans than the average human being um so that that sort of sense of this this great eternal and again asimov was you know this is something you see a lot in his books that these that these robots would live forever like the the i think the one that was published in 1977 the, Milan, the um,
0: the Bicentennial uh, but, yeah, man. Bicentennial man.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who was a, this a, this immortal robot who wanted to be mortal? And I yeah. thought, well, you know, probably bicentennial man probably had ten years if he if he was lucky. So right. you know, I think that's it's things like that that we tend to think of robots almost as superhuman rather than they're they're a type of incredibly sophisticated, amazing machine. Uh, mm. like the the Boston Dynamics robots being among my favorites and ad like machines they they are vul- vulnerable even yeah. just something as simple as sunlight will mm. break down a robot eventually so mm-hmm. so we ha- our expectations for them are probably you know sometimes they're met sometimes they're exceeded our fear of them is probably not misguided like we we should we have, especially around uses of AI, we, you know, absolutely, there are ethical concerns, which fortunately are becoming, coming to the forefront in a way that I didn't see as much when I first started writing the book. But I think that some of the things that we worry about um, distract us from the things that we should be worrying about. And yes, that science fiction is is largely to blame for that, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah, well, it's a it's an easy territory right for high conflict and, and and make a lot of uh action to have robots uh or ai become go rogue and go evil and and uh, try to take over the world so it's an understandable shortcut to try to uh, yeah. to, to to go to that route and you know, you, you, you instantly have a lot of conflict and a a lot to explore. So I get it, but yeah, I am always curious about that. I, I love that you bring in to the book, the, uh, sort of examples, uh, and, and reference different science fiction And first of all, kudos. For for bringing up Robot and Frank, which I think is just a a oh. lovely film that's just so underrated. I wish more people would, would, would yeah, see that. Yeah, that's a
1: that's a great one. That's that's a great one.
0: Just a, a, a fantastic story, and I, I, so you know, it's fascinating to walk through this journey where you're where you're you know mapping out the history, but then you're also looking forward which is really interesting yeah. too. And, and there's a bit of science fiction brought in there in the aspect of creating these scenarios at the beginning of the chapters where you kind of look forward to, oh, so this is what, you know, some human augmentation and having interacting with more advanced AI might look like a few decades from now and then a few decades yeah. further from that. Um, do you... Uh, how has people responded to that aspect of the book? I'm kind of curious because, you know, it's mixing. It's kind of blurring the lines a little between your strict nonfiction and then bringing in that element of fiction.
1: Um, I think that it it seems to have been well accepted. I think people kind of, you know, do regard it as, um, you know, obviously it's completely speculative. Right. The one thing I tried to emphasize in the book uh, um, is that there's nothing in those sections of the book that somebody isn't predicting is going to happen. Uh, of course, they're probably wrong about many of them, but they're probably right about many. Um, the one that's definitely uh, not, was, was was off, was the self-driving car chapter. Um, if there is one uh, area of that book that um, where I have seen things the the whole perspective uh, on, on those when I consider them robots mm-hmm. um, change um, over a period a very short period of time it's self-driving cars um, I think that when I started writing the book the prediction was that we would be able to go into a showroom and buy a full, a fully autonomous level 5 self-driving car in other words we're not talking about you know, ADAS systems. This is not just the driver assist stuff that we have in many cars now, fully autonomous self-driving car. Take your hands off the wheel. It drives everywhere for you by year, last year, 2020. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in what, and there was, I'm going to be honest with you, I think what I saw during the time that I was Researching the book was, and I'm going to use the word arrogance, about how that problem had been solved, uh, and now it was just a matter of consumer acceptance. Boy, was that ever not true!
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, in my book, I have uh, my husband and I going on a trip to um, to visit friends in um, in uh, Tenafly, New Jersey, and I can't remember what year it was, but I think it might have been sometime in the next couple of years that we were right, doing I think, this. I think it might have
0: been 2025. If memory serves Yeah, it right. might
1: have been 2025. I can guarantee you that in 2025, yeah. um, I'm not going to be going to Fly, New Jersey, <laughs> in, a, in a fully autonomous vehicle. Um, it's interesting that, you know, whenever some, there's a prediction for when you're going to see a particular kind of robot that's in its infancy right now, reaches full potential and will be able to buy it. And it'll become part of everyday life. It's always 10 years from whatever date it is that you're starting <laughs> at. It's always 10 years, right? Um, so what I've been seeing lately is, um, oh, it'll probably be 2030. So it's like, you know, it's and maybe it will be i it's i think there's a very a very good case for self-driving cars i was a there a tremendous skeptic when i started the book and by the end of it i was like bring them on but it's turning out to be a much more difficult process than they anticipated originally so yeah so so your question about the speculative stuff yeah i mean it, it was fun for me to write that but certainly you know the lot the very last chapter which is called sex in the singularity is about sex robots right yeah. and i have had so many people ask me about that you know about these sex robots and like what, what about this and are they going to replace human you know marriages and you know i thought yeah but you know if you want to have a a mate who's going to last again as long as your cell phone right, <laughs> right. <laughs> um yeah it's great um so that's that's certainly been a, a big topic. And there are a lot of claims being made about about the level of AI that could be used in those sex robots. So it would be like, you know, the kind of personal interactions and conversations could be so much like being with a real person. Um, so I think people are kind of horrified and fascinated by that. But there have been a lot of predictions that we're getting there. So in the book, I, I think I place that at 2050.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I might still be around. Uh, as I am in the, as I am in the book. Um, and I think people are were, were interested in that but a lot of people I think read that and thought oh it's going to be like this. Well, it, who knows. Right. But again, like all of those speculative sections were not just me kind of I did make them up.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: I didn't make I didn't make them up out of nothing. I always had right. a starting point where Someone was very confidently saying, "We're going to have a self-driving car that anyone can buy in North America by 2020. We're going to be able to marry a, a robot uh, and have a fully legal, uh, legally recognized um, marriage uh, by 2030." Like you know, and people were getting a lot of media, people who've written books, you know. So mm-hmm. I thought, okay, fine. Let's take. Let's just play pretend and assume that these speculations that they, you know, will back up with a lot of, um, a lot of research of their own or examples of what's happened in the past in a similar field. Um, let's assume that really happens. So here I am, I'm at a wedding and I've got a nephew who's marrying a robot and I'm sort of, you know, in my nineties and I'm just, you know, I'm scandalized. <laughs> I'm scandalized. Right. Because mm-hmm. a robot, you say, so, you know, it, it, it but it's but who knows, right? right. It it could happen. So long
2: winded. Well, long answer. <laughs> no, it's great.
0: I, well, I think that you know it's fascinating that you're you're taking that because I think it's it's a it's a perfect example. Of just those those speculative little sections. They're not full fleshed out stories with like a three act structure or anything like that. But they f- serve as. Again, a reminder of this way in which science fiction and speculative fiction in general kind of helps us wrestle with scenarios that seem uh, impersonal yeah. and, and and begin to bring it into the personal and also to wrestle with the questions we have around, the ethical questions, the yeah. moral questions, the practical questions of what does this mean to marry a robot or to entrust all of my driving to this AI computer or uh, work in that working environment or, or even the aspects where, you know, I, I which I think we're very much headed towards of um, augmenting our bodies. Right? Oh,
1: absolutely. <laughs> Bring it on. I say, I right, know I'm kind
0: of ready. for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Definitely. My back is not what it used to be. So my knee,
1: uh, my knees, my knees, <laughs> I'm telling you, i I you've probably seen those and I talk about them in the book. I can't remember what they're called, but they're like exoskeletons. I think they're called exoskeletons. Um yep. I the most famous example in my in the and the most fun one is in Aliens when mm-hmm. Sigourney Weaver is is in the but there are versions of that now that are used um to help people who have um you know who've lost limbs or who have you know who have some kind of physical problem that doesn't allow them to, to walk as quickly as they want, or they need some muscular or musculoskeletal help. Um, I've also heard that they're sometimes used in, um, in um, settings where people are doing, having to do a lot of heavy lifting now, like mm-hmm. in, in factory settings, um, that kind of thing. So yes, the physical augmentation thing um, where you basically become a, I like to call a centaur which is I'm, I'm ripping off Gary the wonderful Gary Kasparov now, um, who played Deep Blue back in the '90s, and he started talking about you know it's you know playing chess with augmenting your ability to play chess with the robot so that the human and the robot were like on a team against another human and a robot, and he called it being a centaur. And I think that, um, in my view, that would be the best way for the future of robotics to really play out is for us to be able to think of them as partners mm-hmm. and as tools. And yeah, I, and I think that's happening, it's happening right now, um, in sometimes in very unexpected ways. Certainly the digital assistants, like the Alexas of the world in, yeah. in our home, for someone who, um, you know, has issues with, you know, vision impairment, for example, um, actually being able to, um, to do things through voice command that way, um, is, is hugely helpful. And I think that that's been more of a, an advantage and there have been mo- more uptake in, um, uh, groups of people who are, who are living with disabilities than I think was expected.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that I also really appreciated what your book was this the the discussion around yeah that role of you know what is human partnership with AI the yeah. the whole Deep Blue story and, and and kind of that turnaround to oh actually maybe there's ways in which instead of human versus machine we need to think about human and machine and what are, what is possible one of the passages that I really appreciated where you were talking about The the fact that AI uh, may or may not ever really be able to replace humans when it comes to creativity and that sort Mm. of like intuitive, innovative kind of thinking that requires a certain level of complex thinking that we we don't always even understand. And we can't always even put into words uh, in... I'm I, I'm curious like do do people think like oh yeah that's that's just like wishful thinking what about all the like other jobs that don't require creativity or is the future potentially one in which we actually really do become more creative
1: I think that you know you could get you can have you could get somebody on the show to have an argument with me this is is a touchy one yeah um about whether AIs can be creative I guess it depends on what you call creativity Mm -hmm. um in my view what AIs are great at is to Mimic what's been done before and look for patterns. I mean, obviously, that's what they're good at. They they can look for patterns that we, over a lifetime, would never be able to see. They can just, you know, process enough data to let's talk. Let's talk about novels, for example. If I mean, I I'm sure I have been reading recently about people who've been doing this type of thing with AIs, like like you know, essentially letting AIs. Read the entire works of Stephen King, and then writing a an AI driven driven Stephen King novel, um, you know a Stephen King ish Stephen King like <laughs> type right. novel, um, and and there are lots of examples of this of of AIs looking at the work of of writers and sort of who are popular and picking out patterns and um, types of uh, you know plot, you know, overall plot development or the types of words that are being used, anything that sort of provides a clue and then essentially mirroring, mirroring it or copying it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there there are a lot of examples of, of AIs being able to um, kind of, I'm trying to think of the right word, mimic isn't quite it. I guess it kind of is, um, to create something original but it's based on um, looking at what a whole lot of humans or one, like the Stephen King example um, or what one specific creative human has done and then trying to uh, sort of co- copy it or sort of jet not copy generate something that seems like it could have been written by Stephen King for example mm-hmm. or pieces of music I mean you see this um, and I'm talking about composing music I mean it's right. been that's been done so, I guess my question would be: What would the AI do without the people to, right, right. to, to do that? I mean, you know, on the I mean, on the one hand, on the one side of the argument, you can say, well, Terry, the reason that you write the books that you write is because you spent your entire childhood reading Arthur C. Clarke and Stephen and Stephen King and and um, not Stephen King. Um, Asimov and, mm. and CF Lewis and, and sort of, you know, all of these writers, like over the years, like you learned how to, to write. So somehow you're processing that and that affects how you write. But of course it's not completely true. It's also my own experiences right. it's your, it's on your own lived experience. It's, it's a whole bunch of things. Like to your point, you're not even a hundred percent aware of what goes into your own creativity. Right.
2: Right.
1: Um, so you could say, well, the AI is just doing the same thing. He's, you know, the AI is just, you know, I almost called it he. Uh, the AI is, uh, um, uh, you know, learning how to be a creator by looking at what, what other creators do. And isn't that just what people do? And I'd say sort of, but not really. The other thing is that you, to, in, to be true, to, there comes a point in, in every culture where, and I think we're at one right now, by the way. So this is really exciting. Where there's a big cultural shift, where the stories that we tell ourselves—I mean, there's all the you know the sort of classic stories that have gone on for millennia—but the way that we tell those stories and the stories that we tell about ourselves and the types of the, the types of stories that we want to hear change because something's happened in the broader world. So to us, in, to so we've had a um, a common experience, or or there's been a war. After World War One, you know, books changed. Um, The movie industry, you know, went through you know huge development. Obviously, just coming out of silent films and so forth. And World War One definitely had an impact on the kinds of stories that people wanted to hear and the way they wanted to tell them, because it was a, a, it was not just a life-altering experience. It was a cultural cultural shift, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we are going through that right now as we come out of COVID, right? So where am I going with this with AIs? AIs can follow, but they can't lead. I guess that's what I'm saying. Like, you Mm -hmm. you know, it's going to be um, the creators. It's going to be people who write books, compose music, visual artists, um, are scientists and and inventors and engineers, and that that type of creativity too, who are gonna be inspired to create different things, but also to tell different stories in different ways. And I think that I, I can't quite see an, uh, the way an AI brain, I mean, artificial intelligence is, 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 is like magic or it, it seems um, in some ways it's, um, it, it's, it's an absolutely incredible development, you know, in a, hum, a human invention, but it's not the human brain it's not. It can't replicate everything that a human creator has been through, and it and I and that thing that thing called intuition. Um, as I say, I'm sure you could get somebody to argue me down on this, uh, but I don't think you can say it. And an AI has intuition, and I or intuition or somehow insight into the zeitgeist, if you want to call that intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I. So I think you would you would see a lot of. We would, I think we would become a very um, static, creatively static um, Mm -hmm. society if we decided to just create nothing and let the AIs write our books, entertain us. Um, Certainly AIs have a big part and growing part in deciding what we read, what we see. Um, As you know, movie studios or publishers become Music producers, I assume, become more and more risk averse and want to really look at what people want. You know, the data tells you that and the AIs can, an algorithm can tell you that. Um, Where that's eventually going to net out, I'm not sure. But I think there will always be people who are pushing the creative envelope and give us something new. And it's Mm -hmm. that something new. The AIs, I don't think I can give right, us. Right, right. So that again, a long-winded answer. I'm no, sorry. No, great.
0: That's <laughs> a, well, there's a lot to unpack there, which is great. I mean, I, I yeah, I love that you where you're saying there about AI being really good at recognizing patterns and being able to observe what has been done so far, and then you're talking about you know algorithms and the movies and music and all of that. Uh, you know, even when you made that comment about that pattern recognition and just looking at what's been done before and trying to replicate it, I was like, yeah, aren't those called the Hollywood studio executives? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> like See, just... they're, they're the ones who, like, uh, yeah, that, no, that's a, and that's a really good point, right? When you, one of the things that, you know, has, again, when I was looking at the book, but it's, I've heard it since, um, is that, you know, AIs could, rep- there could be a type of AI that replaces sort of the CEO of a company. Right. Um, and because they can look at the kinds of decisions that CEOs make and, and sort of somehow replicate that thinking process to, um, you know, to, to be the brain of the company, to be the decision-maker, the guiding, you know, the guiding executive, who's the leader, the leader. Right. Right. And, um, First of all, I don't think so. And it, and and I do describe a generation robot in one chapter of the, in the, just before one of the eight, many AI winters. And it was around 1980, there was a company that actually did try to do that, that charged enormous amounts of money to essentially give you like a CEO's brain in a box <laughs> to a computer. Um, But I think the reason, another reason that's, so I think it's hard to do that, first of all. But the other reason I think you won't see that is because I don't think, like, the the movie executives. So the CEO is going to, I think the CEOs won't stand for that. And the movie executives won't stand for that. Like, you know, they don't want to be replaced by AI. And frankly, I don't think that that's, that it makes sense, you know? Right,
0: yeah. Well, you make a great point, too, about this whole idea of, you know, that, you can do all the data collection and you, and you so you like you're saying like, yes, I grew up reading Arthur C. Clark and Asimov and others and all this stuff. But there is that sense in which we always bring ourselves to the creative act. And yeah. we, can't, we can't get a, around that. Uh, we see the world a certain way. We have a certain lens through which we interpret our life and the world around us. And and I guess that's kind of the question there even if we bring ourselves to the act of creating something, is there a same or or somewhat equivalent self in an AI that the AI would bring to the act of creating that is beyond just the I've collected all this input?
1: I think you'd have to send the AI, I don't know, I think you'd have to send him, him, You have no, to him? send. It. No. Why am I doing the him thing? I don't know. Uh, like I, all AIs are men, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. Why not? Like everybody always assumed that I was, you know, because I have my name is 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 gender neutral. It at, mm-hmm. at, robot writers should be male, so often I get I get that too. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think you'd have to send the AI after university and go through Frosh Week and um, and and then maybe backpack across Europe or I, I don't know, like I, I like. I don't, <laughs> i think
0: just I mean, picturing this, you know, this little yeah, robot, robot
1: like the, well, going I mean, I down, that, a,
0: yeah, the way yeah, is it
1: <laughs> gathering experiences and having its heart broken and getting drunk and you know, um, exploring its sexuality. I, I, it's, it's, you know, I think that's the problem is it's really difficult for for disembodied AIs to, or even for embodied AIs to kind of have the kinds of, of sensual experiences you kind of need to, to tell stories that are meaningful to humans. Um, unless again, you're just kind of echoing. That's what, Mm -hmm. I guess that would be a good word that the AIs are kind of echoing what, what, what they know people want to hear. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of story. These are the kinds of words, that kind of thing. Um, and we all do that. We're all in an echo chamber, right? We do, we echo each other's work as writers, but, um, but we always bring that brush week trip across, you know, Asia on, with a backpack and the, or the terrible thing that happened to me in grade nine, you know, that kind of right. thing. Um, it, it's all of that's in there. It's all in the, in, in the subconscious. Um, and I think a lot of creativity comes from that's That's what the AIs don't really have as a subconscious. Right.
2: Um,
1: mm-hmm. So the South. So I guess that doesn't mean that that couldn't happen one day. <laughs> right, um, we're I talking guess. about the singularity here. I mean, right, that's what right. a lot of people think is is going to happen or has happened. I've had yeah. people say, "Oh, it's already happened. And they're already conscious." I'm like, "What? Well, I don't think so." I guess um, maybe
0: if we, if we already live in a simulation, the way Elon Musk says we do, then then maybe it already happened. It's just been yeah, you know, we're up, just
1: <laughs> yeah, we're all just figments of some some you know Elon's imagination, or I don't know. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, I think that, that it would, that it, that the idea of a self um, and that's kind of what I've been exploring and what I've been writing the last year a little bit too. The idea of a self is at what point do, does an AI have that? And do we have a responsibility as humans who make those AIs do stuff for us basically Make us turn AIs into our, if you will, slaves, mm. forced labor, which is what the word robot came from. Right. If they have a self, let's let's use the example of a sex robot. Let's just use that example for a sec. If the self robot has a self, and that's why you love that sex robot because she has a personality, he or she has a personality, or they has a personality, and a um, you know uh, interests and aspirations and dreams and all those things that going to be having a self, right? Then what right have you to go out and buy a sex robot and then force it to marry? Like, you, you know, mm-hmm. it, at that point, are we not dealing with people, Are you know, artificial people? And again, mm-hmm. I think this is a phrase that came out of Aliens, um, right. but uh, they're, that they're that they're people, but they're just not, you know, they're not carbon-based people, they're silicon-based people, or they're, you know, so they just become a, it. Just expands the diverse nature of what we mean by being a person into into robots and and AI. So is it ethical then to to swear at Siri when you get a dumb answer? But when you ask your phone something, I mean, I don't. Right. You know. So the selfhood thing is really troubling actually, from an ethical standpoint, I guess I would say if if AIs can have enough of a self to create things, then then they should be allowed to be free and do whatever the hell they want. Because at that point, they are people, aren't they? Are are of a kind. They're like children, these artificial children that we've created. Um, You know, I remember at one point, again, I think this happened early enough that I included it in the book, that there were researchers, and I believe it was in Germany, who were investigating a way to make to allow a robot to feel pain, mm-hmm. and the, and they said that the reason that they were doing that was that um, it was very creepy in Westworld, right? Right. Um, they said that the reason they they were doing that is they wanted to have to to have some kind of obvious signal um, when the robot was um, breaking down or, or there was a problem. Um, I don't know why I can't just have a warning light, but anyway, um, right. but that, you know, the idea of, 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 of sensory, of having, of actually experiencing pain, right? Um, and being an, um, and they use that word, mm-hmm. uh, and being an artificial construct, being a robot, and this is a factory robot specifically, um, is, 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 is creepy. Um, and I think kind of, I I almost wonder whether it's semantics that they that if they had used a different word, I wouldn't be reacting this way. But, um, you know, that that sounds like if you create something that makes something, even if it's artificial, feel pain, then doesn't that make you something less than human? I mean, aren't you torturing something essentially? Um, there was a great steampunk book that I read recently. I think it was called *The Mechanical*, and I wish I could remember the author's name. Um, and it and it it plays with that very idea of of uh, these sort of steampunk type robots that are kept in in line by the human masters uh, by this little thing in their heads that causes intense pain when they think about disobeying a direct order. Mm. And That's kind of what we're talking about here as soon as you talk about selves or selves um, and robots. And its I I have a feeling we are going to get to a point when I'm a very, 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 very old woman and I'm walking around in an exoskeleton. um, I think we are going to get to the point we're going to have to have that conversation. Yeah. I think it's going to happen.
0: Yeah, and what I love is that fi- science fiction is helping us look ahead to that conversation yeah. and wrestle with it. I just recently had SB Divya on the show, and we discussed her brand new book called Machinehood, which is exactly about um, AI seeking rights, uh, seeking to be uh, recognized and offered machinehood rights, and yeah. uh, and they have a whole manifesto and everything. It's you know. And it's a very fascinating concept. And that's one of the things that, like, as I think about how do we use science fiction as a lens through which to run simulations of the future and, like, kind of prepare ourselves and, like, build a better world, um, I I love engaging with those kinds of conversations, both from the strictly fiction side, like uh, Divya's book, uh, or from the nonfiction side, like your book, which is looking ahead and thinking about here's how these things are are shaping up and shifting, and uh, kind of imagining what the impact is going to be in our world. As someone who's you're you're writing science fiction uh, and you're writing nonfiction, yeah. uh, and you've done, done all this research, uh, if, as you look at science fiction now, what do you wish uh, science fiction would do more of in? looking ahead to the future and in particular thinking about this concept of singularity and our relationship to robots and AI?
1: Well, I think you used the exact word relationship. Um, I, I and, and it's interesting because Asimov actually did this pretty well in a lot of ways. And, and I don't see a ton of this now is how are we going to, what is the relationship going to be? between us and these other creatures, whatever you want to call them, let's say artificial people or synthetic people or robots or replicants or uh, (laughs) cyborgs, or what is our relationship going to be with them? Um, I sometimes feel as if, you know, like that that we tend to, um, to see our relationship to robots uh, or like, I'll just use that term robots as sort of a catch-all even for sure. AIs, right? Mm-hmm. That we sit, tend to see it in the same way as we see a relationship with, with other people or maybe with our animals or something like that, where it's, um, where it's like two b- creatures who have their own thing going on and they, you know, they coexist alongside each other. I think we see robots as more of our as servants, basically, though, like, but ultimately they are, they're here to meet our needs, and there's there's no robot out there that we're buying um, or developing in great numbers that isn't being done for a commercial purpose. I mean, I had a roboticist tell me flatly, if there's no business case for a robot, there's no robot. Um, the Roomba would be a very good example, probably the mm-hmm. single most successful, and very interesting robot, actually, too. Yeah. Um, so I think we tend to see a see relationship with robots like that, like something, something you know, that, that lives alongside us, but is mostly there just to, to look after us. I think it would be interesting. I'm not going to go so far as the whole robot, you know, mar- marrying a robot, you know, the, the sex bot, you know, the, the pleasure replicant from Blade Runner or whatever. Um, although that certainly, you know, could be part of it. But, but more that the robots might be within us that we may be looking at a situation more like um, integrating the robots inside our brains or in other words augmentation. Um, In some ways I kind of you know I know this may seem like I'm pushing things a little bit but I think it's really kind of happened and we haven't noticed. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I say that is I'm going to bring back my friend again. Um, Most of us walk around with one of these on our bodies uh, and sleep with it at night or have it. I personally have it next to me, Um, you know, it's not with me, but it's next to me and it's never far from me during the day. And so I, I think I'm quoting from, it must be Elon Musk again, who said, you know, somebody walking around with a, with a smartphone now has, has more access to more um you know intelligence or information about anything in the world than the president of the united states had you know in the middle of the 1990s yeah so it's like a second brain really sometimes it's a stupid brain but it's just like a second brain (laughs) where am i going with this i think we're already kind of cyborgs i think we've kind of crossed over already um the fact that we have physical ailments that we get from Using, I have a friend who can't actually like, develop a serious hand issue because of, because of texting all the time, right? Yeah. Um, or, we, you know, you get phone neck and stuff like that. Our bodies are actually changing and responding to having a phone. So why am I onto the phone? Because, again, this very smart roboticist, the Carnegie Mellon, held up the phone to me and said, this is the robot's brain. We're just giving it legs. So right now, I'm the robot's legs. I'm yeah. the robot, Right. And I think that um, I think that I'd like to see more of that. And um, I think we're kind of going to end up becoming more, um, a little bit more like the cyborg model than like subjugated by the robots who are going to take over. I, so I think it's going. I think it would be interesting to see more writing about augmentation. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been playing around a little bit with that in my own work. Um, I like the idea. Of the The centaur model really appeals to me in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, it's really, It's the, the human robot relationship, outside of it being a master slave relationship. And I know that's yeah. I shouldn't be using the word slave, but when you think about it, that's really, that's really what they are. If the robots become intelligent and and have selfhood and are creative. And we're still treating them like a servant. Um, and there, they, and there is a point at which they cross over into what we call consciousness. Then this whole relationship is not going to work anymore.
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: So that would that would be one thing. The other, the other thing, if I can throw it in there, is yeah, um, one of the things that humans have going for them, um, and we've kind of touched on it in terms of creative work. Is as our diversity, right? Our diversity of experiences, the cultures we come from, our sexuality, color of our skin. Uh, we're, you know, were you? Are you an immigrant? Are you a child of an immigrant? Indigenous? You know all that, and you know that's one thing that that AI's have really struggled with. They tend. There has been an attempt to try to get a more um, sort of diverse way of AI's gathering information, but you know they. That, as far as I know, so somebody listening to this could, could be saying, no, we're, you know, we found a way. AIs aren't very diverse. I guess that's what I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. One, of the, one, of the, um, one of the advantages we have as human beings is that, you know, is that, that's a strength. We bring a vast amount of different experiences um, to our creative work, regardless of what that creative work is. So that would be another thing that would be really interesting to see in um, a sci-fi book is um, an exploration of of a more diverse world of artificial reality, artificial intelligence, rather, and and robots. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I think that that's, I'm not sure what that would look like, but I would be interested in reading that. Yeah. Um,
0: (laughs) Me too. <laughs> no, that sounds fascinating. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, even some of the, the, the my own writing, uh, my most recent science fiction novel is very much about augmentation. So like the whole idea of human augmentation feels, yeah, very, very close to me. I, I love exploring that. I, you know, even as you're talking about, you know, yeah, our phone, we carry it around we're kind of attached to it. I really do think that yeah, even just the work that's already been done. You know, in the research that I did in, in writing uh, my novel around augmentation. Uh, it, you know, the, the research is is developing there, and the work is being done, and it's just a matter of time to until we finally say, why do, why do I have to hold this stupid thing? <laughs> why isn't it just in here?
1: <laughs> why don't you just put it directly? Yeah, just, just, yeah. just put it, just put it in there. Just like, um, yeah, um, well, I mean, again, Elon Musk, uh, he, he. again, I'm not sure how long ago this was talked about this idea of having neural lace, hmm. which is essentially you put um some sort of disgusting, but you put a little net inside your brain and uh, I, I'm sure that's not the way it works, but the, 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 the concept was that you would be able to sort of augment your brain directly with whatever was, uh, you know, the kind of information that you had in your apps and your phone without having the inconvenience of, you know, having to worry about losing your phone. And I'm a little worried about what that would do with my um, online shopping habits. So, you know, right. I can just imagine it's like... <laughs> So, right.
0: no. <laughs> yeah it, it, ads and and was it Futurama yeah. joked about that you have you have uh you know ads in your dreams everybody just yes. dreams and ads
1: <laughs> you know you know I could see that happening I could just and Futurama which I also mentioned in the book yep, yep, you
0: did um, which is near the, and dear to my heart <laughs> oh
1: yes yeah brilliant um but Futurama were always the the company that made the um you know, the CEO brain in a box concept, which they did sell quite a few of for an astonishing amount of money. Um, and I always just, you know, I kept thinking of Futurama. It's just like the heads, you know, inside those little jars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there,
0: and there, Well, there's even that episode in Futurama where they go to the Hollywood studio execs and they're all robots, and then one of them is just like, I'm programmed <laughs> to underestimate middle America. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm like oh my goodness, but yeah, yeah. So they poke fun at a lot of these aspects as well. But <laughs> I, always, I always appreciate. It. I joked about this with my friend in the episode that he was on where we were talking about the Matrix. How uh, Futurama got got I think a, a really good worthwhile punch in on the Matrix in terms of. Calling the uh, the whole idea of human beings used as as batteries as pr- probably the most dim-witted, uh, <laughs> laziest idea in all of science fiction. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> uh, but it's you know it's I appreciate you you know unpacking a lot of these ideas because I think this is it, it is important as we think uh, about where we're headed and even you know as consumers of science fiction as well as creators of science fiction about if we think about what it is that that science fiction is like programming us towards in some way like i get i get the um the concerns and the fears around mm-hmm. what the future of AI might be, especially when we step back and remember, Oh, DARPA is doing a lot of this research, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so oh, like, yeah, I, yeah, I get yeah. the fear yeah. there because it's, you know, but when we also come into this with the, with the understanding that, Oh, it's not only DARPA, it's all, you know, there are actually a lot of these other organizations and, and part of their, I guess the, the question I have was like in the trepidation is, Where's the you know, where's I guess the equivalent fear uh, of the commercial aspect, right? Because as you were saying, and this is just true in general of our yeah. economy, right? Yeah. if there is not a business case to be made for something, uh, it doesn't actually exist. and um, and that certainly, I think, is something that I, I long to see more explored in in science fiction is the economic side in many fronts. Right. And, um, and so thinking about that aspect of robotics, in particular, and AI, and the fact that, oh, there probably are many other ways we could apply robotics and AI, um, but there's that aspect of a business case must be made for it first.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. And I mean, this, the business case for AI was made, I think, a long time ago, as soon as people started to discover the value of using data to, to target advertising. Yeah. uh and marketing um so I think when you know talk about business case a lot of that sort of evolves around to the, the the you know the humanoid type or I could if I could use that the sort of the, the, the more engineered robot because yeah. the the challenges in getting a robot that could um could you know move around your house or cook for you or clean for you um which there are quite a few institutions and companies working on those kinds of you know again like the next roomba for example you know that kind of robot the robot that you go to the hardware store and buy it's like oh yeah i'm gonna use this to you know cook dinner for me and clean up um there i mean there obviously is a business case for for those kinds of robots because um you know again you know we all love labor-saving devices but in a world with an aging population um you know, if you can get a robot to do, to, to do housework that you'd have to hire someone to come in to do for you. Um, you know, but then of course that extends into things like caregiving and companionship and stuff like that. But I guess where I'm going with this is I think there's a demand for that. I think there's a business case to be made for it, which speaks to why there is so much work in that particular area. But it's really tough. The engineering behind, you know, I'm always amazed looking at the Boston Dynamics, you know, the big dog and yeah. Atlas and those moving robots. And that's kind of the level that you're looking at. If you're looking at a robot that can sort of clean, wash your floors and put your groceries away for you and stuff like that. Um, so the, yeah, so the business case is there, but man, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see if that actually plays out. I've seen some, Especially in the cooking front, I've been watching that a little bit um, since the book, and um, I don't know whether you're you're following any of the stuff going on with Flippy, the 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 hamburger flipping robot who's no. been making hamburgers in California. Oh, nice. Yeah. So yeah. So the um, the thing that, that makes me pause about this is I, is is I. You know, I don't know whether it's practical to have a cook in your house, a roboticized kitchen. And there is one on the market now, which I talked about in its development days in the book. Um, very bespoke kitchen where it basically does like anything you want, this robotic kitchen will cook for you, apparently, um, versus what Flippy does, which is basically just a robot that flips hamburgers in a fast food place in California. Um I have a feeling we're looking at a future with a lot more flippies and a lot fewer bespoke um, automated kitchens in part, just because of the vast amount of money that it would cost to buy and actually maintain what it is. Types I was going to say,
0: the there's a lot of upkeep to that as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think you actually, if I understand the system, and I don't say I completely understand the system, you actually do have to buy like pre-chop, like everything, all the ingredients, have to be prepared to go into that sort of automated kitchen. So it's not as if you just, somebody is delivering the groceries and putting them in the fridge and the kitchen just does everything else. It's all, there's a lot of prep that has to be done. And it's the same with Flippy apparently too. The system works best if it's always working with humans who are ensuring that the patties are a certain diameter the Heat in the restaurant never goes above a certain temperature, it's never overtaxed with the number of customers coming in. Robots don't do well with unpredictable situations, robots as we know them, like in factories and things like that. Yeah. Um, so the, the you know, the business case, um, the business case start w- is it w- would look a lot better if there w- were robots who did have a certain level of consciousness because, um, right now, they I mean they really the sort of mechanized ones can't, you know, distinguish necessarily between your underwear and a towel, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, the robot vision is not the, is is been the holy grail for a long time. Um, And it's still very difficult for robots to be able to distinguish between two different objects, what they're for and what you're supposed to do with them. So one of the most difficult robots to make, like those household robots, would be a robot, like a, a, um, a housekeeping robot for a hotel. Mm. Because every time that robot opened the door of a guest's room, they'd be looking at a different guest's room. And right. it would never be the same twice, right? Because the guests would constantly change and their stuff would constantly change. So somehow that housekeeping robot needs to be able to tell the difference between your bathrobe and um something that they need to, those sheets that they have to, you know, that have to maybe pulled off the bed or something. It's, it's that kind of stuff. So yeah. yeah. We're, well, we were talking about a business case. It's a, There's a business case for all that stuff. But at this point, I think humans are much better at making those split decisions between what do I put in the laundry, the commercial laundry and what belongs to the guest in the hotel. All and right. it's still pretty hard for robots to do that if at all. So yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes absolutely makes sense. Yeah. And, and you, uh, so you're working on a book now that's due out, uh, next year. Uh, and, uh, so I'm intrigued a little bit. I want to like, uh, be able to, uh, explore some of your fiction, maybe invite you back on uh, sometime to
1: chat. That would be fabulous. Yeah, It's, it's called the sister's Sputnik. It's a sequel to a book it's called Sputnik's Children that I wrote, uh, it was published in 2017, um, which has, has some commonality with Generation Robot. Um, it, in fact, the, uh, the sister Sputnik is largely populated with robots at a sort of a tipping point in the near future, very near future, 2025. Um, When uh, robots are absolutely ubiquitous, you know, everywhere there, you know, this is fairly simple robots doing fairly simple things. And then it turns out that somebody uh, has uh, figured out how to develop a robot, particularly racist fascist kind of robot mm-hmm. uh that can uh can send people back where they came from uh, it's that old thing that a lot of Man. especially people of color here that why don't you go back where you came from so now there's there are there are a bunch of robots that uh, can make that happen hmm. so they can replace you so that's Yikes. kind of it's a uh, kind of the it's a, it's sort of a role fascist robot weaponization of time travel book um oh, oh. so yeah. So that's, that's what I've been working on for the, it's a bit of an alternate reality book as is as Sputnik's children is too. So Fascinating. Um, right. I will, I will make sure that you get an arc when it's, when it is. Oh, I'd love uh, that. I'd go. love that. Oh so, yeah, That would
2: be
0: fantastic. Yeah. And then we have you back on, we can chat about it. Uh, that would be fantastic.
1: That would be uh, great.
0: Where can people learn more about your work?
1: Um they can go to my website, um, which is terryfavro.ca, um, and they will see um all my books. Um so The Sisters Footney will be my fourth novel. Um, and there are two different editions of Generation Robot and also available in audiobook and ebook, obviously. Um I'm a little bit, and there's a little bit more information about me on the site and other things that I do. I do do some short fiction and essay writing. Um, and I still labor as a freelance writer in my day job, doing various things for various uh, various organizations. So um, I'm a content writer. I think that's the, the term we now use, right? right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read a lot of content. Um, so yeah, so yeah, just go to my website and um, and I guess I should sh- I sh- I can show the book. Yeah. This this you can see you can see this is my reading copy. This is the original yeah. copy of Generation Robot, the hardcover. Mm-hmm. And this is the brand new in 2020, just in time for the lockdown due to COVID uh, update updated paperback edition with a somewhat less optimistic section on the, the future of the self driving car. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I I hope people do check it out. It's the the, one of the reasons it's called the century of science fiction, fact and speculation is that it actually straddles a century of robotics. Um, And by century, I mean, it starts in 1950, um, which is the year of the publication of iRobot. Um, and it's actually just around the time of the publication of Cybernetics, which is also a, which is my the book that my dad had, um, right. which is a book that, that talks about um, uh, AI and mm-hmm. when AI was a very brand new concept. And the book goes, so it goes back to 1950 to talk about robots and AI and what people were thinking about them at that time, which is remarkably prescient, actually. Mm-hmm. I was shocked by some of the things people were working on, things people were predicting that actually have come true. Um, and it goes forward in time to 2050 when, hey, maybe you'll be able to marry a robot according to some commentators. So I tried to pick some um, uh, important milestone years yeah. in robotics, both in the development of robotics and in what's known as the AI winter when robotics went to, went to sleep for a while. And th- those periods of time in the last uh, 30 to 40 years, when robotics have become very important to AI, have become very important to research institutions and to DARPA,
2: right.
1: uh, and then when that money all went away and went somewhere else, and those periods are called the AI winter, those are very instructive periods of time, because you start to see other technologies that developed when AI went into remission. And one of the biggest ones that I talk about in the book, and the ones that I one I think is really the most fascinating, is the development of the personal computer, which was seen as the exact opposite of AI. It was seen as IA, intelligence augmentation. In other words, more the centaur than the re- replacement for the human brain. Yeah. So I hope people check it out. Even if what your main interest is more in the history of of computing, I think you'll find something in the book.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, because it crosses over that territory, I think, really well. And, and they're integrated, that whole technological development of robotics and the personal computer are, I think, integrated in some, some very important ways. And again, it comes back to, you know, we've got our smartphones and that's very much... Uh, you know, that integration of all that technology and AI coming together in a very personal computer. Yes. You know, that I keep here in my pocket and that listens to me sleep so, so I can check on, uh, is my snoring too bad? Do I need to see a doctor and all that stuff?
1: <laughs> all right. So I've completely drunk the Kool-Aid, so i got the Fitbit, right? So yep, the Fitbit, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> the Fitbit talks to the phone and the phone mm-hmm. tells me if I'm too stressed or I haven't gotten enough sleep or if my, you know, my breathing is... A, And there are times when I think to myself, you know, (laughs) it's like, it's like having, I don't know, your doctor follow you around or your grandmother or something, you know? um, Although it was interesting, again, one of the Carnegie Mellon roboticists said to me, he said, you know, in some ways um, this type of technology, the, the smartphone, the fitness tracker kind of thing is, is an easier way for people to take medical advice and and to carry their medical records around with them. That is, it sort of gets around the, uh, you said the the oldest daughter, what he called the oldest daughter syndrome, which Mm -hmm. is when an elderly person has to go to the doctor, but the only one who really knows everything about their medical history and has a list of all the medications and knows, you know, stuff that perhaps the older person has forgotten or she may or something like that. Um, it's always the oldest daughter who shows up. Well, what, what are, I think we're coming into the era where maybe, maybe there is no oldest daughter. Maybe the oldest daughter lives on the other side of the country, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and in that scenario, you could have something like a very sophisticated version of, you know, the fitness tracker phone and, some kind of robotic device, even a social robot who would act as the, the oldest daughter, Um, which I know sounds chilling, but in a lot of ways I find a bit comforting that, you know, you could, that could be a way to, to carry that kind of vital information with you through life without constantly having to scribble that on a piece of paper as you're running out the door or put a, you know, a note on the phone or that it, that you, that it would be, that it would follow you in an yeah. in, in an urgent situation i mean it so there are there's privacy concerns but you know that's a whole other story and man the, we have a lot to think about as a society that's for sure yeah we do. and that's and that's another thing that science fiction <laughs> and does explore so well right, um, right.
0: Do you have, by the way, any uh, recommendations of good science fiction we should be checking out that, that oh. does some of these things well?
1: Wow. Uh Corey, Corey Doctorow's. Um, oh gosh, I got to remember you. You, I'm trying to remember the name of the book. Um, short stories. Um, it will come to me. It's one word. Fantastic book. Um. Doctor, look it up. Short stories. It's called The Dis. I can see you Googling for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm like, and my phone's turned off. Well, well, let's use the phone. <laughs> uh, let's see. Homeland?
1: No. Nope. Or Walk Away? No. Nope. Um, I'll give you another one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a There's a wonderful, wonderful novel called Hinch. H e n c h, by I believe her name is Natalie Zena Walshots. She's Canadian writer. I think I believe it's a Penguin book. Uh, Hench is an amazing book about um, a world of superheroes and supervillains, where the superheroes and supervillains basically are like you know corporate entities, and they hire henchmen you know, or we used to call henchmen. Mm-hmm. And this woman who's telling the story is a henchman for a supervillain. And she, um, you know, gets badly hurt on the job when a superhero comes in. And, you know, the thing they usually do with henchmen, they throw them around the room and, you know, they end up yeah. in the hospital. And so she ends up, you know, going to the dark side and joining with an even more powerful supervillain to, uh, to, um, you know, to get re- get revenge on this superhero. It is. I mean, it sounds like a light comic booky book. It's not. It's very entertaining. It's very funny in parts. But as a reflection of actual kind of corporate culture, it is just an absolute jam. It's, it's very, very good. Um, so I would definitely um, recommend that one. Um, there was one I mentioned earlier, and again, I can't remember the writer's name, called The Mechanical. It's part of a three-part trilogy, um, a steampunk trilogy, mm. uh, in a world of, um, of um, robots called clackers. Um, where, and it's an alternate, sort of an alternate history, um, where a, a country that's an awful lot like Holland is at, is at war with another sort of superpower that's an awful lot like France. And they use, and the clackers belong to, you know... The Dutch superpower and um, it, yeah, it, that is that is a fascinating, fascinating trilogy. So the first book in the series is called *The Mechanical*. So I will recommend that one as well. Um,
0: is it for the uh, Corey Doctorow, Is it *Radicalized*?
1: Radicalized. Oh, Thank you. Okay. *Radicalized* is is, is ter- terrific book. Um, speculative fiction, uh, very sharp social uh, critique um, uh, of, you know, the world that we live in and uh, uses of AI. And I really highly, highly recommend that book. Another one um, that um, was very impressed with is called American War by Omar El Akkad. Um, And uh, it is a books, a dystopian novel set in a future that's probably I'm trying to remember kind of late 21st century where the United States is kind of broken down into different um, uh, sort of separate jurisdictions. It's about a kind of a civil war Mm -hmm. Um, and sort of the story of how a terrorist is kind of born and raised in the middle of all this. It's, I have to say it's extremely harrowing, Mm -hmm. upsetting book. It's incredibly well-written and uh, you know, it's I would I, I really I highly recommend it um yeah. gosh there are so many great books <laughs> in the sci-fi and speculative yeah. fiction right now I mean mm. um it's hard no, to know where to stop but those I are know, a few right? that, that I really like from this year oh I got another one I gotta mention okay a writer named Jo Walton J-O um, and she has written so many books that I love but one uh, again a trilogy that goes, is not new, um, goes back probably early 2000s called the Small Change Trilogy. Mm. And these are alternate history books that deal with an alternate history of World War II. Starting with a, with the a first book that posits a situation where England makes a separate peace with Nazi Germany and sort of sort, sort of sits out the war and kind of becomes kind of an ally of Hitler's after the war. Um, and it's, it spins out a rather disturbing and yet believable, um, uh, you know, alternate history where, um, where England basically did not have that kind of war experience and kind of, it was more like the Germans than not right. in that period of time. Mm. So I, I, it's the entire trilogy is called the small change trilogy. I think the first one is called farthing. Um, Farthing, Halfpenny, and I can't remember the last one. They're all kind of units of of British old time, you know, British um, monetary system. Um, but those are fantastic books. The thing that's really clever about them too, is that she mixes genres, like a a classic British spy novel, but again, it's an alternate history of World War II the aftermath of World War II. She's, I think she's brilliant and she's written a ton of books. Um and won, you know, all sorts of sci fi. I think she's won the Hugo and the Aurora and all everything. Um, but uh I, I actually anything but if it's by Joe Walton, just read it. <laughs> That's what my advice to you. Um but uh, but I particularly enjoy those books. Um and she has new ones out as well. So um fantastic. Joe, I love your work. Nice. Um
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. And uh, yeah, really appreciate the book. And uh, I've, I've got a lot of awesome things to go check out, too, uh, which will okay, be great. great. Um, and I'm looking forward to checking out some of your fiction. Maybe uh, you come back and we can chat some more.
1: Uh, see, check out Sputnik's Children because yeah. um, the next one's going to be in the same. Batshit crazy world (laughs) is what this children is. (laughs) So it's good to start there. (laughs)
0: Sounds good. Batshit crazy is right up my alley. (laughs) Terry, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you.
1: It was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Take care.
0: So. That was my conversation with Terry Favreau. A lot of fun. I love the recommendations there. I got a lot to check out now. And I'm really looking forward to checking out uh, some of her fiction as well, including the book coming out next year. So I hope you'll check out her website and be sure to check out Generation Robots. Very fantastic book, very thought-provoking, and she's done a lot of great work researching and speculating about where uh, things are going with AI and robots, and really that cross-section, that intersection of science fiction and the reality of AI and robots. And as we think about the kind of science fiction that we want to see and how we think about the future and how we can build a better future through science fiction, uh, I think this is very much the kind of thing that more people need to be checking out. So if you're into this podcast, I think you're going to enjoy uh, that book as well. So thank you so much for joining us for this conversation, and I hope that you're doing well. And uh, I look forward to discussing some more interesting things in the future. Next episode, I'm actually going to be uh, talking to Octavia Cade and discussing her book, The Stone Weta, which deals with uh, climate change and the control of data. So I hope you'll join us for that. In the meantime, continue to check out really fun science fiction books and movies and stories and recommend those to each other and take good care of each other. Be safe and well out there and continue to ask big questions as always. We'll see you soon.